everybody and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight and our guest today is Ginny Gentry. Ginny worked side by side with the world-renowned Toltec master Don Miguel Ruiz for 14 years, first as his manager and student and later as his teaching partner. During this time, she earned the title of Nagal Woman, the female spiritual leader of the Toltec Eagle Knight lineage. Gentry is the author of Dreaming Down Heaven, a felicitous combination of fiction and nonfiction that provides a refreshing new take on personal spiritual growth. Ginny is one of the three principal teachers featured in the upcoming feature-length documentary, Dreaming Heaven, that is premiering at the Topanga Film Festival in California. Ginny, I am so delighted to welcome you. Hi, honey. Thank you. It's delicious to be with you today. (laughs) I hope it's as delicious as the chocolate cake you just took out of the oven. Well, I hope the chocolate cake works out, too, you know. (laughs) Ginny, I had the pleasure of interviewing Don Miguel Ruiz just after The Fifth Agreement was published. And I just love him and his teachings and, and the four agreements. Tell us how you came to join Don Miguel and how you became a Nagal. Um, hmm. Well, how did I come to join? You know, I had gone to Peru, I had decided, you know how we, someday I think we figure out that we're sort of dilettantes on our spiritual path and and we decide we're going to get serious. And so my way of getting serious was I took myself to Peru on a uh, spiritual quest. It was a guided journey. And I met a woman there who was uh, destined to come home from Peru and uh, meet Miguel and marry him. And so I actually met Miguel in 1988 uh, when I returned from Peru. Uh, I went to see my girlfriend, and she was, um, you know, had a developed relationship uh, with Miguel. And so that was really how I, I met him. And um, at the time, I decided that the only way I was going to know who I was was if I, I dismantled my life and all those things that you know, described me, the job and the possessions and so forth. And so I got a little busy over the next year to tearing my life apart with intention. Uh, but through that, I kept in touch with them. And uh, then uh, his wife had a dream that I would uh, make him famous and that I should um, go to work for him as his manager. Wow. And that... Yes, you know, I don't talk about this. This is something I really don't talk about. And so uh, it was agreed that I would become his uh, student and his manager. And so we had these different uh, different hats we wore very strongly with each other. And then how I became the Nawal woman um, is, you know, it's a very interesting thing because I, as I characterized myself, I was sort of sitting in the back of the room throwing spitballs. You know, I was the the original um, rebel. And, you know, the truth is you have to be a rebel, really, to, you know, to break with the belief system. But I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to, you know, be up in front of anybody. I didn't want to, you know, all these things you don't want to do. And uh, he was like, well, I'll fix you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, and so he um, he appointed me his teaching partner. And... Um, 
I took it very seriously, you know. And I also felt like I was sort of behind the power curve. And, and so it got me to sort of quit goofing off. It was, you know, his, I, I feel, I don't know that we ever talked about it, but I feel like it was his, his own way of challenging me, you know, to, uh, to get off the, um, my hesitation mm-hmm. and just really go ahead and go for it. Well, they do say that the best way to learn a subject actually is to teach it. Well, absolutely, absolutely. I, um, you know, I used to watch Miguel ask people to start teaching, and I you know, had a little bit of judgment about it. Because um, I would see these people that you know, still had a lot of fear or a lot of judgment themselves. And, um, and so I didn't understand what was going on until I actually started teaching myself and realized so much that so much of what I really needed to learn was going to be delivered when I started teaching. Mm-hmm. So we show up and, you know, we teach best that which we most need to learn. You know, as uh, that fellow said those many years ago in uh, Illusions, The Adventures of Reluctant Messiah, you know, we teach best that which we most need to learn. And, and we all have it in us. It isn't like someone gets exempt, you know, from this access to the, the, the wisdom, you know, the universal wisdom. We all have access to it. We just have to have something that, you know... Um, inspires us to be willing to go there. Mm, mm. The main character in your book, uh, Dreaming Down Heaven, is called Gigi, which just happens to be your initials. (laughs) Just (laughs) happens to be my initials. And I might add, you're one of the few people that has ever picked up on that. (laughs) It's it's funny to me because, yes, of course, it it was about my initials. It wasn't you know, really a girl's name, exactly. So is the book an autobiography as much as it is an allegory? Well, certainly in this, in this context, the, the hmm, I'm trying to think of what the right word here, what Gigi has to learn on her um, way through her, oh, out of, fear, we could say, out of the fear of her life, are the same, you know, are what I had to learn. It's, it's those aspects, you know, what, that I had to change within myself. So are all of the ways that um, she experiences that duplicate? No. Is the teaching duplicate? Absolutely. So um, she has um, many of my characteristics. She definitely had that rebel don't tell me what to do thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would say, yes, yes, we are, we are very similar. But, you know, here's the truth. The truth is her teacher and I are also very similar. Because it's like that place where we have this, um, this, this great knowing within us. And we have the great rebel. And we have, you know, it's like all those aspects of ourselves. So, yes, Gigi and I have many, many uh, similar factual and uh, learning experiences, and so, and the same with Maya, you know, her teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our listeners, can you describe the book for us? Well, you know, really, um, Dreaming Down Heaven is two books in one. You know, the first book is a, um, a fiction account of a young woman whose life has come spectacularly undone. 
and she finds herself in this old, musty bookstore, um, drawn sort of uh, for for some odd reason uh, to this little old book that she finds called Dreaming Down Heaven, written by someone named Maya. So she she buys the book on a lark, if you will, and uh, takes it home and falls asleep reading it and is catapulted into this crazy nighttime adventure, much like Alice in Wonderland, where she uh, uh, finds herself in Maya's, the goddess of illusion, in her remedial angel training program. And she uh, uh, embarks on this great adventure in the dream time and where she has to uh, learn Maya's 12 keystones that are going to... um, you know, really uh, propel her uh, journey out of out of fear and into a life based on great love. She she has great adventures. She meets a cute New Mexican cowboy. <laughs> you know, she she has skydiving adventures to test her fear, and you know, lots of really fun fun things. And then when she wakes up from the dream, uh, she finds uh, the little book there and that she had bought the day before. So it's really fun. Um, the little book, you know, is sort of uh, Maya's, in Maya's voice of, you know, what it is that we really need to do uh, to get back on track with our, uh, you know, what I'm going to call angelic heritage, not in the context of a religious uh, sense of angels exactly, not not through some, somebody's, you know, dogma about what an angel is, but just, you know, like the very precious eternal nature, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to realign ourselves with the truth of our magnificence. So do these 12 keystones impart the essence, would you say, of Toltec wisdom? Well, you know, here's how I would characterize it. You know, when I worked with Miguel, either as his student or his, um, his teaching partner, he didn't exactly tell us how to go do what we needed to go do. He would say things like um, that, you know, the judgment wasn't a good idea, that love was the answer, whatever the question, you know, that kind of thing. But he didn't say what were the practical. Uh, the four agreements were practical, but that was, <coughs> excuse me, love. That was just, you know, a small little teaching in the Toltec world. And so what I would say is what the 12 keystones were, were they were the actual practical steps that I had to take um, to embody the Toltec wisdom. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me as I look back over my my students over the years um, that it's like we all have to do that. You know, it, it's almost like no matter what tradition uh, we are exploring, it's like let's say everyone, you know, from the Sufis to the, Sufis to the Buddhists, wh- whatever, you know, the great Christian mystery schools, the Kabbalah, it, it's almost like we're floating in this giant river of possibility. But there's places where we have to get something. So we have to like go through a narrow lock on the river. Like we can be there and we can be with our tradition. We can, you know, be pursuing it or the dogma of it or whatever in our way. But there's a place where we all have to come to a certain understanding equally. 
Um, so is it the heart of the Toltec wisdom? It is. And, and my experience of it, my, the, my tr- deep truths of it, is it would be the same really with any of the great mystery traditions. I would, I would actually uh, totally agree with that um, because I, I found resonance with so many of the different wisdom teachers who are coming out with books. And it's wonderful to see. It's a bit like the parable of the blind man and the elephant. Everybody is yes. seeing <laughs> the thing from a different perspective, but describing what is essentially the same creature. Uh, you know, it's the truth, because here's the thing. It's like a, one of my... Um, one of, one of the keystones is be present in the heart of now. Well, as, as we all know, Eckhart Tolle uh, did a book about the power of now. Well, mm-hmm. I didn't read the book. And I didn't read the book intentionally because I didn't, I wanted to keep my own experience, my experience, so mm-hmm. I could write about it. So I, did I discover the now moment really because of Miguel or Eckhart Tolle? Not exactly. I discovered it because it was what came up for me on my way out of hell. You know, it's like one of those things that you have to, that you really have to embrace. And in fact, if you've ever uh, heard uh, Eckhart Tolle speak, um, it also came up for him at a moment of hell. And so okay. I, think, I think these are universal truths that are emerging in different voices so people will hear them enough times that they actually internalize them <laughs> imagine that yes i i hear you love i hear you so do you have any favorite keystones what what do you think uh, which would you put at the top of the the class well you know the, the thing that's interesting about the keystones to me is that they they have levels within themselves. It's just like, you know, if you do the tarot, when you're through the deck of the tarot, you start again on the journey of the fool because it's the next evolution that you go through within your own self. Turn on the spiral. Mm-hmm. And um, so my experience of the keystones is like that, that uh, what is true uh, for me at, on some day or with my students um, is absolutely going to um, to change. Uh, you know, it will be revisited. Something that you think, well, I know that, uh, will come back and it'll nip you. You know, um, the, the thing, it's like right now, right this second, I would say to you that um, the one that I have been seeing a lot with my students, um, you know, I teach on Facebook. The one that, that gets a lot of uh, activity is use your voice to speak the truth, that, that particular keystone. And that isn't use your voice to war your opinion on someone. Mm. It is really that expression of, like, finding our voice. Uh, what is it to actually be able to kindly say no? You know, to kindly say no thank you to uh, be willing to, um, to really honor what is in your own heart. Uh, we think that if we, if we say no, if we don't agree with folks, you know, whatever it is, if, if, if we're willing uh, to, to take care of ourselves, somehow we have been 
acculturated to think that that's selfishness. And yet, then, how do we honor our own heart? How do we honor our own expression? So I, I see people really trying to actually get the courage to honor their own expression, for God's sakes. It's crazy that we've all sort of agreed to not speak the truth, to mm. try to um, second-guess what makes somebody else happy or not happy, and our or what will keep us likable. That, that's such an interesting topic. Ginny, I want to come right back to it, but we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back with our guest, Ginny Gentry. What if you could profoundly transform your life with a simple adjustment? Enter the Beyond Word sweepstakes at beyondword.com and win a free reading from renowned empath Penny Pierce, a pioneer in the field of intuition development. You'll also get a free signed copy of her new book, Frequency, The Power of Personal Vibration. Go to beyondword.com and enter today. It's time to make a change. You are listening to New Consciousness Review. You can learn more about Miriam Knight's guests by visiting the NCR online showcase of Conscious Media, where you'll find thousands of spiritual and progressive titles of authors and filmmakers. And now let's get back to Miriam and her guest. And we're back with Jenny Gentry discussing her book, Dreaming Down Heaven. Ginny, we were just talking about speaking the truth and the reasons why people might not speak their truth. They, they are afraid of offending someone or they're afraid of not being liked. It really comes down to fear, doesn't it? It does, honey. And it's, it's really crazy. Um, I think I've used the word crazy now about four times to describe this one thing. But yet it is also so uh, typical of, you know, the agreed-upon reality that we all share. And that somehow uh, it's unkind. It's somehow it's unkind to, to uh, ask for what we want, to, to be able to express ourselves. I mean, how on earth did we come up with that? You know, it's... I mean, and, and yet, how will we know the freedom that comes with honest expression? Um, you know, people think, you know, one of the things um, they use, they use this term, um, God, oh, now I've just lost it. What is it when you, what, I'm going to confront someone. Mm-hmm. They use the word confront as a synonym for I'm going to speak my truth. Mm-hmm. That somehow uh, that our honest expression is confrontive. That, you know, that's just part of the... Um, the, the problem with it, you know, is this idea that we have made um, it confrontive. Mm-hmm. And, 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 for, and for sure, it's like, you know, I, I spend a lot of time trying to help uh, uh, loosen that hold, you know, from folks, from students, from, you know, people that, that read, you know, what I'm teaching about is... Um, is to, to, to drop the association 
Well, it has such origins in our childhood, doesn't it? Where, really, yes. And, and it's interesting that on the, on the one hand, parents always want their children to speak the truth, and yet the children observe their parents telling lies. And so, uh, yes, 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 yes. The, 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 the idea of speaking with integrity is um, g- to keep you out of trouble. If you speak the truth with integrity, you can't get into trouble. Well, you can, but... Well, you know, um, I, I used to think, uh, I was raised by the folks that, you know, lying was really a bad thing. And so I, I grew up and I hardly ever lied. Hardly ever. Uh, but I prevaricated like crazy. <laughs> and, and I had no idea that I did that. I became the master of the soundbite. You know, I could say something that was very manipulative that no one would know I was manipulating so that I would, in effect, be telling a big, tall tale. Uh-huh. And I did it. As I look back on my own experience, I think I did it to to stay out of trouble. I did it so I would uh, keep my image looking like however I thought my image should look like, you know. But, you know, it's like we have to even go back further than the parents because, you know, when you have a belief system uh, that's, that's really, first of all, dualistic in concept, good, bad, right, wrong, fear, no fear, um, it, it's like even in the fear, no fear, there's fear. Mm-hmm. You know, the only way really out of all of that is into um, something outside of dualism because the whole belief system is based, if it's based in dualism, it's based on fear. So it's like what we're really talking about is the parents did what their parents did, what the society did, you know, Mm -hmm. how we've all been exposed to it. And goodness sakes, you know, uh, for those of us that have really dedicated our lives to undoing it, it's no small task, you know, to... Uh, be willing to speak the truth, no matter how kindly. Um, and and yet, it, it's like, how could we make another choice? Yeah. Well, going going back to something you just said about um, preserving your image, another one of the key stands that I really like is sacrifice your mask to save your soul. Can you expand on that one? Well. Where that one really came from for me is, I mean, obviously there's, uh, there's levels and levels of it. Um, it's like when we're really concerned with what we look like, uh, whether we're being cool. I used to call it having a cool card. You know, I didn't want to go on my spiritual journey because I wanted to be cool. And there was just nothing cool, as I saw it, about, you know, uh, going and becoming spiritual. My actual greatest obstacle was I wanted to be cool. But if I look at it, it's like everything from when we're little tiny, as we go on and we keep changing our mass, you know, as we evolve, as, you know, we become the perfect mother, the perfect wife, the perfect businesswoman, you know, whatever it is, we are so attached to what that looks like, what the uniform is to dress for it, um, you know, all of those things. But yet, what it, it boiled down to for me, I've hardly seen 
folks be able to recognize this, that we can get rid of all these masks, you know, we can, we can understand that the need to be cool really isn't all it's cracked up to be. But people get stuck in the need to be right. And to me, the greatest, most elusive mask, mask of all of them is our need to be right. That one was a big one for me, I have to admit. Well, and it's crazy. I, if I look back on, on the folks that, you know, over the years that, that I was um, in school with, we could say, and, I, and by school I mean in Toltec school, or, mm-hmm. is if I look at the one place that it was like they, they got so clear and then ultimately got bogged down in the need to be right. And it's it's one of the most elusive things, but it's where our wars come from. You know, it's where all of our cherished um, uh, holy uh, cow opinions come from. You know, it's a very difficult thing. So in the, in that case, what was the bottom line about it when all was said and done is self righteousness. Mm. You know that our self righteousness is the biggest trap of all. So. Sacrifice your mask to save your soul. Many, many layers all heading towards finally dismantling our self-righteousness. Wow. To, to, to shift gears for a moment, why, why is the dreaming metaphor so central to the book and to Toltec practice? Dreaming and magic. Well, you know... Okay, well, those are two different things. First of all, in the Toltec understanding, there is uh, this idea that we, in fact, dream all the time. Mm -hmm. In the nighttime dream, we have, um, you know, we don't have much of a frame. The nighttime dream, you know, is sort of all over the place. Whether you're controlling it or not, it's, it's, it's 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 more illusory. The daytime dream, people don't understand, but in fact, the daytime dream is just as profound. The difference is that it has context. It has the illusion of a solid frame for it. But in fact, the whole way our mind works is you could call it uh, a type of dreaming because we, at any moment, we could take a million different um, things to focus on. But we choose however it is that we choose. And it is, it is much like, uh, because how I perceive reality is so different from yours, even though we have so many things in common. And so what we say is that we're dreaming it differently, that we're putting together these pieces completely in a unique frame of which we have great control. The difference is people don't realize that it is their dream and they could control it. But when you, uh, when you really come to an understanding of that, then the magic begins. So what's magic mean in that context? There's this term called power and magic. Anytime, you know, it, we, perhaps we could even use the term miracle. You know, we think of miracles as something that are out of the ordinary, versus the fact that every breath we take is basically a miracle. So magic is what happens when you become really aware in the moment 
and present, and you see the outcome of all of these different things. It's like you take power to it. You take your intent, your intention, your awareness to something, and then what happens is you get to watch um, the way that you actually are creating your experience of life. That's magic. You get to watch it. You also get to make different choices. You, uh, you, you come to the awareness that you have choices to make, and by making different ones, you create a different experience of your life. Absolutely. And, and there's one little caveat that I'd like to add to that. We, you know, we know that we have some choices. The, the problem is there are a whole bunch of choices we don't know we have. And it's, it's beginning to discover them and, and to see, uh, to let those come front and center in our life is the, so that we have conscious choice in so many more ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talk about the notion of awakening. What are we awakening from and what are we awakening to? Well, you know, I, I think of it. I don't know if I should even probably use that example. It's just so much a part of my nomenclature. But it's almost like that we're under a spell. It's almost like that, that we come here and we're sound asleep to the possible, or we fall asleep. I'm not so sure we arrive here asleep, but we seem to fall asleep. We seem to lose consciousness. It's like the way that we are so manipulatable mm-hmm. by, you know, all the ways that, you know, the politics can just throw a little fear at us. And, you know, and we're headed down the dusty trail in reaction. So um, I completely lost my train of thought. How am I doing? I'm talking so fast. <laughs> I just lost my train of thought, honey. Yeah, uh, we're talking about what are we awakening from? Okay, sorry. See, I just fell completely asleep. I'm a good example, aren't I? You know, I think we're, what we're really saying is we are coming into consciousness, coming into great awareness. It's like... If you don't have awareness, the analogy would be you're asleep, mm-hmm. that, that you're not even paying attention to what's going on around you. So awakening is really, you know, for me, it was just really coming into uh, great awareness in any given moment of my eternal nature, of my breath, of, uh, of being a choice, not being in reaction. And so it's coming out of the uh, sleepwalking of the humans. Uh, it's coming into um, great awareness it's, mm-hmm. and using your great awareness. It's not like coming and going from it. So awakening to me, I'm sure that there are people that have a thousand different uh, points of view about that. To me, it is coming into awareness. Well, everything you just... Everything you just described is what I would call the new consciousness. It's what I refer to when I named our website, New Consciousness Review. It's, it's becoming awake and aware of what is really happening and what are really our options. Yes, yes. So how can you sustain this state of awakened awareness? Well, you know, love, it's practice. 
We, you, can't, you can't sustain anything until, one, you're really willing to go do it. Mm-hmm. Once you're really go, willing to go do it, then what it, it comes down to is practice, and there's no, there's no easy way out of it. You know, the reason I wrote this book, and as you well know, I wrote it in a language, in a format that was accessible, you know, to contemporary culture. And, and fun. Yet it, yes, thank you. But yet if you keep reading it, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. We have to keep looking at something deeper and deeper and deeper. We think of that. I think one of the problems with why we don't do that is we think we're going to discover something icky about ourselves. We're not going to fit in. I mean, we have the 101 excuses. But the truth is, it's like the more practice, the more freedom, the more, I'll use my word again, deliciousness that we find in life. It's so much fun. Mm. You know, you don't, you don't have to wear a white outfit and never have a margarita. I mean, it's not like that you have to get a new rule book, you know, and proselytize yourself in front of a new rule book. It's the difference between coming from love or fear. Why wouldn't we? So it's practice. Practice. You know, for myself, I quit reading for pleasure, and I started reading books to brainwash myself. And that that word's a little inflammatory, but it was the truth. I had so much fear in my mind, I had to to make real attempts, you know, to take it out of my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, I lead Journeys to Teotihuacan. It's a sacred site in Mexico. It's fabulous. I've been there 70 times. Do people have to go to Teotihuacan 70 times? Well, of course you don't. But you know what it does is it's like going to, to do intensives. It's like, you know, the constant um, reinforcement of being around people who are also choosing to get out of fear as a mainstay in their lives. Mm-hmm. So it's practice. It's uh, listening to programs such as yours. It's, you know, reading more books. It's uh, finding ways to keep yourself uh, a choice. But it's practice. You know, the 12 keystones. I've, I've suggested that people write these 12 keystones down on, you know, beautiful little pieces of paper and put them on an altar and, and choose one a week. And then really focus on it. Bring your awareness to it. Play with it. You know, create... Um, ways to experience it more and more in your life. Why don't you tell us um, some of the other keystones? Um, Let's see. I just happen to have a list right here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Free yourself from false beliefs. Free yourself from false beliefs is great because we don't even realize that our beliefs, what that means. So let me say that what I call a false belief is a belief that is based in fear. We have so many beliefs uh, running our program, in our, our, the software on the computer of us, and, and we don't even realize <clears throat> you know, the degree of influence. But the trick is this. What we believe controls the software. So if we are believing fearful things, then what that means is that our automatic responses are fearful. 
Mm-hmm. We have to begin to investigate these so we can begin the undoing of them. Otherwise, we're, we're operating on an action-reaction um, you know, way in the world. And possibly, possibly, my favorite one, just on a very personal love, uh, personal level, is self-love silences the critic. And, and what that means is this. We, uh, I think one of the first things we all learn uh, when you start uh, to get serious about your spiritual journey is, one, that judgment's not a good idea, and, two, that we're all full of judgment. And people go, well, goodness, I'm never going to be able to get out of this. And there's a way out. It's, it's, again, it's a practice way, but it's the way out. It is an action step. Mm-hmm. And it's this. You know, when, when we judge and then we learn that we're not supposed to judge, then the first thing we do when we find ourselves judging is then we judge ourselves for judging. Well, that's the good getting in place. Because if you can keep yourself from going to the next level of judgment, it's an act of self-love. If you can catch your judge in action and stop it, it's an act of self-love. You don't stop it by raising um, the ante on yourself by, you know, saying that you've done, you know, that you're bad. You stop it with love. You don't stop it with more judgment. Mm. So every time that we do an interrupt, every time, it's like administering an antidote. And the antidote is a little bit of love. By not hurting ourselves more, we administer the antidote. Now, it seems like a little tiny, a little tiny bit of love. Well, what's that going to do? Well, it's sort of like a savings account. You know, like it's the child that puts a dollar in the bank and it's like, well, what's a dollar going to do? But if you keep putting the dollar in the bank, if you habituate yourself to put a dollar in the bank, to, to interrupt and do an act of love. Well, what happens is you begin to create a, a formidable alternative to fear. That as the love grows, you know, it doesn't go away. It's like you're stockpiling it. And so that you become stronger, that the love becomes a, a larger part of your perspective. And so it, it, to me, is the greatest possible gift we can give ourselves is to begin to habituate, to, to, to give ourselves, you know, the act of love. You know, the mind can't hold two thoughts at one time. It can't do it. Mm-hmm. So any time that you're, you know, starting to go into a bunch of judgment, you can do an interrupt. You can talk on the phone. You can dance wildly, sing loudly. You know, anything that will stop your descent into, you know, a hell of your own creation is great. You had um, such a wonderful articulation of this idea uh, in your book. I just want to read a passage. Great. Because it was so beautifully put. It's um, the, the letter that Maya... 
sends to uh, inserts in the book that Gigi finds. And it says, stop trying to fix yourself. You are not broken. You don't need repairing and you don't need to try harder. Study and live the keystones. Practice what you want to master and your life will be blessed with great ease and boundless love. You don't have to worry about the past. Worry robs you of the energy to be now. New choices await you. The most important choice you can make is to remember and live the truth of your magnificence. You are a perfect reflection of the great mystery without need for improvement. I mean, how many of us think that, oh, if only we were smarter, faster, richer, slimmer, whatever, then we'd be okay? Yeah. You know, I I just recently read, um, who was the name of that uh, actor that was in The Mask, the comedian? Jim Carrey. Yes, and I don't, you know, I'm going to have to go find this and memorize it. Jim Carrey said something like, I wish everyone could be rich and famous so that they could see that that is, that the answers are not there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because of course, you know, we think, well, gosh, if only I, and it's not true. You know, when people tell me uh, how miserable they are for whatever series of reasons, you know, You can make yourself miserable um, or not in every situation. It's it's really quite thought-provoking that I have, um, I've had students who are very wealthy and beautiful and just miserable folks. And I've had folks that had uh, students that were uh, barely subsisting and yet joys of the moment, you know? Mm. We always have a choice. You mentioned uh, Jim Carrey and the director who directed most of his movies um, is a chap by the name of Tom Shadiak. And he just created a documentary called I Am in which he describes how he came exactly to the point that you were mentioning. Um, he had everything, you know, the house, the yacht the, in Malibu and so on. And he gave it all away because he wasn't happy. And um, it, it's such a profound lesson to be sufficient in yourself, and that's what you're saying. And it's what's wild to me is that we just don't do it. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I was one of the ones who didn't do it. And now I look back and I can hardly imagine what I was thinking <laughs> <laughs> no, it just—it's just, what were you crazy? You know, I can't imagine what I was thinking. Do you but, find you know, that men, do you find that men and women respond differently to dreaming down heaven? Well, I yes and yes and no, and let me explain that. Uh, I wrote this book uh, in female language, and what that means to me is there's a female protagonist. It's the hero's journey from the woman's point of view. Uh, the great mystic is a woman. Uh, the experiences that the protagonist has are sort of what you might think of as, uh, I don't know if typical is the right word, but certainly stereotypical female experiences. But the teaching is really strong. There's nothing lightweight about the teaching. 
So what happens is women get into it and they love it because they love, uh, whether they're even aware of it or not, having this sort of chick-lit um, context to, to really understand things that they um, are learning about the, the truth of themselves. Men, folks, if, uh, if a man is still polarized within himself, he can't get past the first chapter. A man that is really honestly, um, not honestly like in a big word, but just a man that is reflective, that is wanting to know, they love the book just as much as the women. Mm-hmm. It just depends on how stuck they are. Uh, and I, I don't mean to sound that, that sounded rough, but uh, in there, what it is, what you need to do to be masculine and in control. You know, I've, um, I've had a number of men, but when, it, when the book first came out, I, I wasn't sure, what, you know, what the response was going to be. And I had men writing these phenomenal reviews. And I remember saying to um, a fellow who was like, a, I think, a plumber, you know, a, a, a seriously... Uh, uh, active, a blue-collar a person, uh, and he, I said, Is, did that work for you? And he said, you know, he said, I have all of these same things, too. We, we, are, we are nothing if not the same. Mm-hmm. And, and so my experience has been um, that the women are, are delighted and many of the men are delighted, but it is not as across the board. Mm-hmm. I suppose mm-hmm. I'm supposed to say something different. I, you know, as an <laughs> author, I should go, everybody likes it. And, uh, but I'm telling you what my experience is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ginny, you have a movie coming out called Dreaming Heaven. Tell you us know, honey, about it. It's already movie. out. Uh-huh. Um, I'm, I'm afraid we sent you something, some text that was a little old. It, was, uh, it came out the end of July. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, Dreaming Heaven, it's a documentary, and it's a documentary uh, based on a journey we led to Teotihuacan, you know, the heart of the Toltec tradition, a few years ago. And it's about the folks that went on the journey and their experience. Uh, right now what's happening is the film is making the rounds at uh, the film festivals, and um, it's with a number of distributors with all of those... Um, you know, details being worked out. So uh, it isn't available for release yet. You can catch it at film festivals, and it will be, as soon as they get those, um, you know, different contracts and so forth squared away, then it's going to be a whole different story. It's great. They did the most outrageous, stunning job. When I was in Topanga, it was so wonderful because these... There were folks there coming up and going, gosh, I felt like I'd been to Teotihuacan with you. It was amazing. I, I went into the experience with you, which, of course, was, you know, very much what, what we wanted to gift people with, was the experience of actually having been there. You conduct tours to Teotihuacan regularly. I do. I, mm-hmm. I, do. I go um, typically a couple of times a year. I'm going... Uh, the 7th of October this year, and um, uh, the last time I went was in March. 
So, you know, about twice a year this year. And I don't know what's going to happen when the, you know, the film comes out, uh, whether that, that will, you know, encourage more or, you know, if it will make a difference. I, you know, I really don't know. But I, I do know this. I'm going in October and uh, love to have folks that, um, you know, are, would like to come experience the truth of their magnificence. You know, I'd love to have them come with us, honey. How can people find out more about you? And, and well, about you know, uh, they can go to the website, which is my name, but my name's hard to remember how to spell. So the easiest way to do it is to go to dreamingdownheaven.com, uh, dreamingdownheaven.com. Uh, my name is Ginny with a G as in George, G-I-N-I-G-E-N-T-R-Y. And uh, it's also GinnyGentry.com. And I also teach on Facebook every day. Every day? Uh, wow. Yes. I, um, somebody asked me today, how do you do this every day? And it's like, well, I, I wrote four books on my way to teaching myself how to read. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, excuse me, how to write. So I, uh, I have all this material, you know, where I was learning how to write. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I use those little bits to inspire me, you know. But I, I'm delighted to have these folks on Facebook um, that, you know, that come by for their inspiration. And sometimes we have a little chat. So I'd love to have some more friends on Facebook if anybody wants to come play with us. Great. Well, Ginny, that brings us to the end of our uh, chat today. And I'm, uh, it certainly went very quickly for me. So I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, honey, thank you. I, I'm I'm really delighted uh, to be here. I love the review you did of uh, the book. It was magnificent, and thank you so much for all that you do out in the world. I mean, you're making you're making just such great headways, inroads, headways, whatever those expressions <laughs> are. Thank you so much for all of your efforts. Thank you, Jenny. Goodbye. Bye, love. We're going to conclude our show today with the track of the week, selected by Scott Johnson of the Positive Music Association from among members of the PMA. This week, we're featuring a song by Bev Barnett and Greg Newlin called Love Can Change the World.
I see the world in black and white And rarely hear the grain I don't take time to read the lights And then I turn the page When I can smell the roses still The snow is on the ground The petals falling at my feet I finally hear the sound If love can change the world I can play a part That was Love Can Change the World by Bev Barnett and Greg Newlin from Campbell, California. They are just two of the PMA's growing group of musicians who are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. PMA members have music styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz, all with positive messages designed to uplift, heal or enlighten. To find out more about Bev and Greg's music, go to bevandgreg.com. That's B-E-V-A-N-D-G-R-E-G.com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. That's our show for this week, and I hope you'll join us next week on NCR Radio when my guest will be Dr. Terry Walls. We'll be talking about her book, Minding My Mitochondria, the amazing and illuminating story of how Terry cured herself of MS and was able to go from a wheelchair to completing an 18-mile bike ride. If you enjoyed our show, why don't you check out our archive and our community of readers and authors at ncreview.com. I'm Miriam Knight. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.